Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the, uh, the London School of Economics. So I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the LSE. It is my privilege to uh, introduce today's speaker. But before I do that, I'd like to make a couple announcements. So the plan is that Professor Eichengreen is going to talk for roughly 30, 40 minutes. And then after that, there's a possibility to ask him some questions. So that will take roughly 30 minutes. And so it's hard to predict these things, but we expect to be done in an hour, hour 15 minutes. Uh, make sure your mobile phone is on silent. Uh, but if you want to use your mobile phone to tweet, is that the hashtag is LSE Mirrors. The event is being recorded. And if everything goes according to plan, then it should be available on the website of LSE Events and of the website of the Center for Macroeconomics. And then after the event, you have the possibility to buy Barry's book and get it signed. And the plan is if you want to do it, you can buy it outside. And you come back, and then Barry will be waiting on this stage to sign it for you. So now let me turn to the second part of my job, and that's to introduce this evening's speaker. So Professor Eichengreen is a professor of economics and political science at the University of California in Berkeley. He has written several books and numerous articles in prestigious academic journals and also op-eds in outlets such as the Financial Times. His work covers a wide variety of topics, financial crises, exchange rates, capital flows, currency unions, globalization, sovereign debts, and his work is often rich with... Uh, you know, wisdom from the past. He has also quite a bit of policy experience. For example, he was senior policy advisor of the IMF, and not surprisingly, he has been on foreign policy magazines' list of 100 leading global thinkers. So we're very privileged to have him here this evening. So please join me in welcoming our speaker. Thank you. You could have mentioned that I'm no longer on that list. Um, it's nice to be back at the uh, LSE. I see some friends uh, in the audience. I was last here in this lecture theater four years ago when I had a previous book called Exorbitant Privilege, The Rise and Fall of the Dollar. So academics have different incentives to, to write books. Mine is that I get to come to the LSE and <laughs> talk about it. I'm tempted to start inappropriately for this audience, perhaps, and say, oh, no, not a book, another book about the financial crisis. But here you are tonight on a chilly night with a appetite, clearly, for another book on the financial crisis. Let me start, then, with a couple of bits of motivation about why you should be interested in uh, uh, another talk and another book on, on the financial crisis. One, I think, is that with the passage of time, it becomes possible to see the Great Recession, the crisis through which we've just lived as history, to put it in its historical context, something that was impossible when the event was unfolding around us. And second, I think with the passage of time, it's possible to laugh through our tears to see some of the human foibles associated with the crisis. So I, in the book, I 
deploy my ghoulish sense of humor a little bit in looking at some of the things that happened in 2008, 2009 in particular. Why Hall of Mirrors? Because there are some striking parallels between what happened in, in the 1920s and 1930s and what happened most recently, including the decision made in that Hall and Mirrors at the Palace in Versailles following World War I. There was a decision not to provide debt relief to a troubled country that has some parallels with what has been happening in Europe most recently, but also because I think the uh, metaphor of Hall, of Hall of Mirrors reminds us of the way these two crises relate to one another. The lessons of the Great Depression, I'm waving my fingers because I think this notion lessons of the Great Depression is something that we should think about. The distilled wisdom uh, that flowed from what people have been writing and teaching about the, the Great Depression of the 1930s importantly informed and shaped how our policymakers responded to the Great Recession. And I think reciprocally, having lived through the Great Recession, we are forced to think differently now about the, the history of the Great Depression. I know myself, Vowder could have also mentioned that I'm on sabbatical this year at that another one of those universities, Cambridge, up the road, when I do a little bit of teaching next month and the month after on the Great Depression, I will have to adjust my lecture notes given uh, the experience through which we've just lived. So this book is about that reciprocal relationship between the two crises. It's about why recovery from the Great Depression hasn't been more complete and post-crisis reform hasn't been more ambitious, and it's about how we got into this mess in the first place. So let me start with the role of history. History is a lens through which we, by which I mean informed public and our policymakers alike, view current problems. And the logic of historical analogy is never more compelling than during crises when there is no time to build careful analytical models and, and test them for fitness to the circumstances at hand. So this is a obvious point that foreign policy specialists, for example, have frequently referred to how um, the Munich analogy powerfully shaped Harry Truman's response to the Korean crisis. You can think of the power of the analogy, which may be well-placed or misplaced, depending on your view. Between 9-11 and Pearl Harbor, there are over 100,000 unique Internet references, according to, to Google, to that analogy. So it was then with the Great Recession of 2008-2009 and the Great Depression of 1929-1933, the two great economic and financial crises of the last century. There's no doubt that conventional wisdom about the earlier episode, what I've referred to in quotes as the lessons of the Great Depression, powerfully shaped the response to the more recent crisis. In particular, 
the decisions of our policymakers were powerfully shaped by received wisdom about the mistakes of their predecessors. In the 1930s, when that earlier crisis hit, those predecessors had succumbed to the protectionist temptation. They had cut public spending at the worst possible time. They had failed to stabilize the money supply. They had neglected their responsibility for financial stability. The result was collapsing banks, collapsing prices, collapsing trade, and a collapsing economy in a phrase, the Great Depression of the 20th century. That this economic crisis reflected disastrous but avoidable policy failures became conventional wisdom, courtesy of influential tomes like Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's Monetary History of the United States. Therefore, in 2008, heeding the lessons of that earlier episode, policymakers vowed to do better. If the failure of their predecessors to provide emergency liquidity had led to a terrible banking and financial crisis, this time they would flood the markets with liquidity. If failure to stabilize the money supply had led to a disastrous deflation, then this time they would cut interest rates and expand central bank balance sheets. If efforts to balance budgets had worsened the earlier slump, then this time instead they would apply fiscal stimulus. As a result of that very different response, unemployment in in my country in the United States peaked at only 10%. Painfully high, to be sure, but well below the terrible 25% unemployment rate scaled in 1933. This time in the United States, failed banks numbered in the hundreds, not in the thousands. Financial dislocations were widespread, but the complete and utter collapse of financial markets, as happened in the U.S. in the 1930s, was successfully averted. And what was true of the United States was true also of other countries. I write in the book, every unhappy country is unhappy in its own way, and there were varying degrees of economic unhappiness in the 1930s, but a few ill-starred southern European countries, notwithstanding that unhappiness did not rise to 1930s levels. Because the policy response was better this time, so the decline in output and employment, the social dislocations, the human pain and suffering were less. Full stop. Unfortunately, This happy narrative, I think, is too easy, too easy on us. Queen Elizabeth II reminded this audience or this institution of the fact in 2008 when she came here and said, why didn't you, addressing the assembled economists, see it coming? In in response to that profound question, a number of economists claimed that they had seen it coming. But I think if you look carefully at at what they said, they were warning of a different crisis than the one that actually occurred, a dollar crash, for example. Or they were simply uttering vague, unspecified warnings that a bad thing was coming in the manner of many economists. Um, That even specialists on financial crises didn't sound louder warnings. So that's my (coughs) mea culpa 
I'm a specialist not only on financial crises, but on the history of financial crises, and I didn't see it coming <coughs> exactly, suggests that we should adopt a more generous, somewhat less critical posture to officials in the 1920s for not having seen it coming. Our failure, I think, reflects what psychologists refer to as continuity bias, the um, subconscious tendency to believe that the future will resemble the recent past. It reflects peer pressure to conform and the fear of being ostracized. If you are so reckless as to criticize Alan Greenspan's financial stewardship at the Federal Reserve's Jackson Hole Conference in 2005, it reflects the power of a dominant ideology, in this case the ideology of efficient markets and the belief in financial liberalization that flows from that belief, and it reflects the influence of big financial institutions through their political contributions, and I, I think perhaps even more importantly, the intellectual cross-pollination, you might say, or the revolving door between Wall Street and Washington, D.C., and how that shapes the policy debate. Ultimately, however, I would point to another even more important factor. I would argue that the roots of this failure to see the recent crisis coming lay in the same progressive narrative of the Great Depression that I described to you a moment ago. Entirely correctable flaws of collective decision-making, that narrative explained, had been responsible for the inability of contemporaries to see risks to financial stability in the 1920s. Modern-day central bankers had learned from the mistakes of their predecessors. Scientific central banking informed by the a rigorous framework of inflation targeting now reduced economic and financial volatility. Advances in supervision and regulation limited financial excesses. Deposit insurance put in place starting in the United States, but elsewhere as well, in response to the banking panics of the 1930s, had eliminated the danger of bank runs and retail depositor panics. Conventional wisdom about the Great Depression, that it was caused by avoidable, entirely avoidable policy failures, was itself conducive to the belief that those failures could be, and indeed had been, corrected. It followed that no comparable crisis was possible now, all of which we now know was dreadfully wrong. Part of the problem, I think, is that we, and now again I'm pointing the finger at myself, economic historians, had always done a better job at, at explaining how the Great Depression became great, why it was such a severe downturn once it was underway, than we had in explaining the buildup of risks and why the downturn occurred in the first place. We, here I'm going to talk about the 1920s again, but you can substitute the early 21st century if you wish for every point that's about to follow. We failed to highlight how in the 1920s rapid financial innovation had combined with inadequate regulation and lax monetary policy to create dangerous financial fragilities. 
we fail to explain how capital flows from one half of Europe to the other half of Europe had set that continent up for a fall. We had failed to explain how the naive belief that advances in scientific central banking, like the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1914, had uh, uh, rendered crises a thing of the past and led contemporaries to discount the risks to financial stability. We had failed to explain about how a long period of stability, they called it the new era, we called it the great moderation, encouraged excessive risk-taking and empowered those who argued against stricter regulation. Recent experience, I think, suggests the need to write that history more carefully. Had we done so earlier, we might have seen more clearly how the same factors were at work in the early 21st century. There was also the failure to anticipate how disruptive the crisis and the collapse of big financial institutions would be. Specifically, there was the failure to anticipate how disruptive the collapse of Lehman Brothers would be. And here, too, I would blame the lessons of the Great Depression in good part. The conventional narrative about the Great Depression focuses on the disruptive impact of bank failures, commercial bank failures, and runs by retail depositors. Lehman was not a deposit-taking bank. Lehman didn't have retail depositors. It followed uh, from that observation that its failure couldn't pose 1930s-type problems. More generally, this view, informed by the lessons of the Great Depression, was why the, the Ball Accord setting capital standards for financial institutions focused on commercial banks. Deposit insurance focused on commercial banks. Regulation generally focused on, on commercial banks, a focus that neglected, we now know, the shadow banking system of uh, investment banks, hedge funds, money market funds, commercial paper issuers. It, it ignored Lehman's derivatives positions. It ignored the fact that wholesale creditors, other banks, could effectively run on Lehman. The result was the decision to, to allow the, the uncontrolled failure of Lehman Brothers, in my view, the single most serious mistake of the financial crisis. So it was at that point in September of 2008 that policymakers realized they had a situation on their hands, that we were indeed on the verge of at risk of another Great Depression, the leaders of the advanced industrial countries quickly issued a joint statement that no systemically significant financial institution would henceforth be allowed to fail. A reluctant U.S. Congress passed the TARP on a second try. One after another, governments took steps to provide liquidity and, and capital to distressed financial institutions. Central banks flooded financial markets with liquidity. There was the February 2009 London summit of G20 countries with Gordon Brown's trillion-dollar fiscal stimulus plan, policymakers congratulated themselves that they had successfully avoided another Great Depression. And yet, I think the results are not everything that those who had learned the lesson 
lessons of the Great Depression, promised us post-recovery, post-crisis recovery in the United States has been lethargic. Uh, the U.S. economy, as you know, has grown post-crisis at only about half the rate typical of a recovery from a, a, a downturn. Uh, recovery has been disappointing in the U.K. by historical standards. Europe has done even worse with a double-dip recession. If two is not enough, it, it now looks like it's going for three. This was not the successful stabilization and vigorous recovery promised by those who had learned the lessons of history. At one level, why is no mystery? Starting in 2010, the U.S. and Europe both took a hard right turn toward austerity, spending under the Obama stimulus, I remind you, peaked in fiscal year 2010 and then headed steadily downward. The Congress and administration agreed to $1.2 trillion of spending cuts over 10 years. We can argue about the distributional consequences of allowing the Bush tax cuts to expire in 2013, but that too took a big bite out of spending, out of demand, and out of economic growth, and I haven't even mentioned the sequester yet. In Europe, the turn was even more dramatic. There's no question, of course, that in Greece, where spending was out of control, a dose of austerity was required, but the adjustment program on which Greece embarked under the watchful eyes of the Troika is unprecedented in history. You combine the cumulative tax increases and spending cuts, they amount to 16% of GDP. That's a big uh, reduction in demand to impose on a struggling economy. The euro area as a whole cut budget deficits modestly in 2011 and then quite sharply in 2012, despite the fact that it was back in, in recession and private spending was stagnant. And I take note of the fact that I'm, I'm back in the UK, a country with the flexibility afforded by a national currency and a national central bank, which nonetheless has embarked on an ambitious program of fiscal consolidation, last time I looked, amounting to a cumulative 5% of GDP. What lessons, historical or other, informed this extraordinary turn of events. For central banks, which similarly moved away from stimulative measures as quickly as they could, there was, as always, deeply ingrained fear of inflation, and that fear is no more deeply ingrained, ingrained deeply ingrained nowhere more than in Germany, given memories of hyperinflation in 1923, and German fear has translated into European policy, given the Bundesbank-like structure of the ECB, and especially in 2010-2011, when the ECB's French president, Jean-Claude Trichet, was attempting to de demonstrate that he was as dedicated, as Teutonic, an inflation fighter as any German.
The U.S. case is more perplexing. The United States had not experienced hyperinflation in the 1920s, nor at any other time, for that matter. But this didn't prevent overwrought commentators from warning that Weimar was right around the corner. The lessons uh, of the 1930s, that when the economy is in near-depression conditions with interest rates at zero and ample excess capacity, the central bank can expand its balance sheet without courting inflation. Those lessons were, were lost from view. The more hysterical the commentary became, the more the Congress accused the, the Fed of debasing the currency, the more Fed governors then feared for their independence. This rendered them anxious to start shrinking the Fed's balance sheet toward normal levels before there was any, anything resembling a normal economy. So if you doubt the generality of that argument, I have three words for you, Swiss National Bank. In, in the case of fiscal policy, the case for cont continued stimulus was weakened by its failure to deliver everything promised, whether because politicians are prone to overpromising or because the downturn was even more severe in late 2008-2009 than anyone who was making those promises at the time realized on the basis of contemporaneous data. There was the failure to distinguish how bad conditions were from how much worse they would have been without the policy. There was the failure to distinguish the need for medium-term consolidation from the need for spending, public spending in the short term. There was the failure to distinguish the case for fiscal consolidation in countries that needed it, like Greece, from the situation of countries with space to do more, like Germany. So a range of factors came together. The one thing they had in common was failure. Inevitably, failures like this have multiple causes. There was the dominance of politics over economic reasoning. There was the inability of economists to make the case for better policies more effectively. I'm pointing the finger at myself again here. There was the tendency of economists to forget as many lessons of the 1930s as they remembered. But here, too, I would argue the single most powerful factor in this premature decision to abandon policies that would have done more to support the economy when it needed support was surely that policymakers had prevented the worst. They had avoided another Great Depression. They could declare the emergency over. They could therefore heed the call for an early return to normal policies. The irony then is that their very success in preventing a 1930s-like economic collapse led to their failure to support a more vigorous recovery. And the argument I would make about macroeconomic policies and recovery, I would make about financial reform as well. In the 1930s, we saw the complete and utter collapse of the financial system in the United States. The prevailing system was, and it, its advocates, were discredited. In response to that, we got far-reaching financial reform, of which the Glass-Steagall Act and the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission are only the most obvious examples. This time, 
we averted the worst. We prevented the complete and utter collapse of the financial system. That allowed the <laughs> opponents of more far-reaching financial reform to regroup. And what we got in the United States, for example, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act uh, of 2010 was weak soup by the standards of the 1930s, important provisions of which are now at risk of being rolled back by the new Congress. So again, it, it is ironic. People misinterpret me sometimes as suggesting we should have allowed the economy to collapse or allowed the financial system to collapse. Uh, which is certainly not what I'm arguing, but there is the irony that our successes, our success was at the same time the mother of failure. I could stop there, but knowing where I am and knowing my audience and recalling the evening on, on which I'm speaking, I imagine there's the expectation that I should say a little bit about Europe and uh, about the euro, especially given how the euro crisis became the second leg of the global financial crisis. I write in the book, the decision to create the euro in 1999 was one of the great economic policy blunders of the 20th century. I would argue that this decision to go ahead with the euro is another example of the uses and misuses of history. In this case, we see the ability of policymakers with a political agenda to cherry-pick their historical analogies, to argue that financial instability and indirectly even the political troubles of the 1930s and World War II had been caused by competitive devaluations, not by the rigid gold standard system that preceded those competitive devaluations implying that the risk in the 1990s was competitive devaluation rather than the premature creation of a gold standard-like system, which is what Europe got in the end. John F. Kennedy, when contemplating how to respond to the Cuban Missile Crisis, considered a range of historical analogies from Pearl Harbor to the Berlin blockade to the Suez Crisis, and he tested them for fitness to the situation at hand. It is perhaps revealing that he had historians like Arthur Schlesinger in his kitchen cabinet. One might say, much like Barack Obama fortunately had Christina Romer as chair of his Council of Economic Advisors. Contrast that with the example I gave before of Harry Truman, who relied only on the analogy with Munich. Truman, I think, did not have historians among his advisors. He had one analogy, and he pushed it for all it was worth. So, too, did the architects of the Maastricht Treaty. The analogy between the gold standard and the euro system evidently was not clear in the 1990s. It has become clearer with the onset of the crisis, just as the gold standard prevented national governments and monetary authorities from responding, from having and using monetary autonomy in the 1930s, it became clear that the euro system posed similar obstacles 
to, at the national level, to stabilizing action. That earlier conflict between the gold standard and, and the need for unilateral action to stabilize economies and get growth going again was resolved by abandoning the gold standard, which now led many observers to predict that this, our crisis would be resolved by Europe abandoning the euro. This ter- turns out to have been an, another misreading of history, at least so far. In the 1930s, when governments abandoned the gold standard, international trade and lending had already collapsed. This time, European countries did just enough to avoid that fate. So the euro had to be and has to be defended in order to preserve the single market and intra-European trade and payments. In the 1930s, political solidarity was another casualty of the Depression, notwithstanding the strains of the crisis. Governments this time have continued to consult and collaborate. We, of course, are about to get a very important test of my hypothesis. All complaints about the European Union notwithstanding, 60 years of European integration created a certain level of political solidarity. Certainly, political solidarity in Europe, even today, under these strained conditions, is considerably greater than it was in Europe in the 1930s. EU countries in a strong economic and financial position have provided loans to their weak European partners. Those loans could and should have been larger, but they have been large by the standards of the 1930s. Here, then, is another case where the history of the 1930s is an imperfect guide to policy outcomes, where the earlier crisis led to the collapse of the gold standard. This one has not led to the collapse of the Eurozone, at least yet. So let me stop there. Thanks. So now uh, we'd like to give you the opportunity to ask questions. So the stewards have mics, so please wait until you have a mic so everybody can, uh, can hear the question. And try to be concise and... Uh, hi. You mentioned that we, uh, this time, we neglected institutional reforms. Don't you think, other than political reasons, there's also ideological reasons, especially weakness of, you know, institutional economists and uh, basically the strengths of people who uh, put emphasis on macroeconomic policies? I think, as I alluded to when I made that remark about the Um, continuity bias and about the reluctance of economists to criticize Alan Greenspan's financial stewardship, that there is a a tendency, even among economists who who by nature are trained to like debate, to go along in order to get along. There is an element of that, I think, that Uh, There has been a lot of scientific retrogression in the subfield of macroeconomics. And certainly as an economic historian, uh, economic historians are in the business of studying institutions and how they affect the operation of 
economies, I'm sympathetic to your point. If we taught more institutional economics in, in graduate school and institutional economists had a larger pulpit, they were able to publish their views in even higher profile publications, would we have avoided the crisis? I'm not sure I would take your argument quite that far. I will start pointing to people sitting on the aisles. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wondered if you could say um, a little bit more about um, the point you made at the beginning, um, that the experience of this crisis will change the way that we think about the, 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 uh, the 1930s episode. Friedman and Schwartz, for example, taught us that if we stabilize the money supply and stabilize prices, we'll, we will avoid the worst. Central banks did a reasonably good job. That's why uh, there is a broadly positive evaluation of how they responded to the crisis in stabilizing money supplies and stabilizing prices. But we learned that that's not enough to head off financial instability, that other kinds of targeted interventions in the, in the financial system are needed in addition. And the story of the Great Depression, as it's written in the future, I think will, will be much more than simply how the Fed allowed the money supply to contract and, and prices to fall. Um, as, in addition, as, as I said before, I think we have had a reminder how uh, there's a tendency with benefit of hindsight to, to see the onset of the depression as predictable because of rapid financial innovation, inadequate regulation, monetary policy that could have been better, whereas having lived through similar uh, events, I think we have reason to be more um, forgiving of 1920s policymakers. I would like to point it out, uh, um, something that you said uh, during your presentation. You said that uh, we didn't allow to fail some company during the economic crisis, but probably this has been a great failure. So I would like that you explain better this point. There is uh, a point of view out there that we should have let the banks go under in order to teach them a lesson and address, first and foremost, the moral hazard problem and the tendency to take excessive risks that result in crises because banks expect they're going to be bailed out. My view has been and remains the first order of business is to stabilize the patient and stem the bleeding and then to worry about the underlying condition later. So I am supportive, uh, broadly speaking, uh, of the view that policymakers in, in the advanced countries took. I find myself agreeing with Timothy Geithner's view in this context that however distasteful it was, we had to save the banks 
in order to save the economy and prevent households from suffering more, and that the task of dealing with the moral hazard problem, dealing with financial reform, dealing with structural reform was the next problem to deal with. You stabilize the patient first, and then you deal with curing the underlying condition later. A theme of my book, of course, is it's not that easy. The more successful you are at stabilizing the patient, the less urgency you feel about curing the underlying condition. What do you do about that? I think the best we can do is have talks like this, and all I can do is write a book like this to remind people that the urgency of reform is still there, even if the, the patient is stable, the underlying condition is not cured. I'd like to follow up on that one. Um, you talked about pre the Great Depression and um, financial innovation and perhaps excessive financial innovation, pre the Great Recession, excessive financial innovation, now attempts to deal with the Great Recession and even more excessive financial innovation when he has to think of this QE uh, product. I wonder, going back a little bit, whether... Um, one might make reference to, and somebody's got this, Weigel Andrew Mellon, and since we are talking about patients and diseases, there is a boil which had to be lanced. So could you comment upon that, please? It was Mellon's view that the boil had to be lanced and the rottenness had to be purged out of the system. The other view was, of course, that of John Maynard Keynes, who wrote a letter to Franklin Delano Roosevelt in December of 1933 about recovery and reform, in which he said, you, FDR, continue to worry too much about reform and not enough about recovery, that recovery is the first order of business, and once the economy, the patient, is recovering, it becomes time to turn to reform. Um, we have had a test of, of the opposite proposition recently. So were you, an adequate, were you an advocate of the other point of view? You can look to the perfect test tube case of Greece, where we have embarked on an ambitious reform effort that <coughs> has been largely unsuccessful, partly because we neglected the recovery problem. We... Uh, are responsible for the growing support of anti-euro, anti-reform parties. I should be clear. I don't. I don't think necessarily that Syriza is an anti-reform party. It took Nixon to go to Greece. It may take Syriza to really do meaningful reform in Greece. But I think the fact that we focused on reform and neglected recovery, there is a simple explanation for why they have found it so hard to make progress. Uh, uh, Professor Arkin Green, uh, you mentioned moral hazard, but moral hazard is a problem rather more for the financial sector than it is for those of us who are ordinary 
depositors in banks. Uh, if I can just make a contrast, last week in the press here, there was a great deal of coverage of the comments made by the chief executive of one of the leading American banks uh, about too much regulation. Well, the problem seems to be uh, that there isn't enough regulation for keeping control of the, the mega banks, those, are, those who are thought to be too big to fail. No one should be surprised by the fact that Jamie Dimon is pushing back against regulation. I, I agree that we have done too much to raise capital standards for the banks. We have not addressed the problem of, of too big to fail. The big banks are bigger than they were before. We have not addressed the problem of derivatives being traded over the counter. Having them be cleared through clearing houses doesn't eliminate those risks. It only concentrates them. We haven't completed, we haven't removed the conflicts of interest that the rating agencies are subject to when they both advise issuers of securities and then rate the resulting securities. If that's not a conflict of interest, what is? We haven't succeeded in disconnecting the rating agencies from the regulatory process. Um, so, a as I said before, I think there remains a lot to do to uh, address the moral hazard problem and, and uh, address the problem that financial innovation has run ahead of regulatory capacity. That issue remains. Professor. Um, hello, Barry. <laughs> Um, I was uh, quite uh, interested by your comparison of the Eurozone with the gold standard in the 30s. Uh, you said um, the Eurozone was a, a blunder, um, and you also argued it has not collapsed yet. You're going to dispute that point? No, no, I, I just want to challenge you now, because you said in the beginning we didn't see it coming. Now we have the chance to see it coming. What is your prediction uh, of the euro? Will it collapse? Because that's what we would like to know, right? Uh, not a, a, a wishy-washy prediction that it has not yet collapsed. How, how about instead of being wishy-washy, I give you a probability distribution? <laughs> I, I, I can tell you my prediction. Let me start with my prediction circa 2007. So I was asked by an NBER conference, subsequently a volume on Europe and the Euro, to write in 2007, before any of this started happening, the chapter on the breakup of the Eurozone. And my conclusion there, going out on a, on a limb, was that the probability of breakup circa 2007, was vanishingly small, close to zero. It couldn't happen because while the economic costs of holding the euro together 
in the face of an asymmetric shock were certainly high. The costs of breaking it up were even higher. And if you do a simple economic cost-benefit analysis, you will see that it's in the interest of European policymakers to, coin a phrase, to do what it takes to hold the euro area together. So what did I miss as a good political economist? Well, as, as a good economist, I didn't see it coming. Who could imagine an asymmetric shock of the magnitude that, occur, that Europe experienced subsequently? That was a failure of imagination. I would argue a failure of collective imagination. Um, and I underestimated, I, I under emphasized the fact that economic policy is often made on non-economic grounds, that it's politicians with rather different issues in mind that ultimately decide whether Greek debt will be restructured and uh, whether there will be a renewed effort in the direction of structural reform in Greece in response to that. So my position for a long time is that the euro was a mistake, but history doesn't run in reverse. That getting out of the euro is more difficult than getting out of the gold standard in the 1930s. That under the gold standard, Britain still had sterling. Britain's debts were denominated in sterling. It was easy to change the parity of sterling relatively speaking. Greece doesn't still have the drachma. Reintroducing the drachma is not straightforward. Serious debt default is implied in the decision to reintroduce the drachma and depreciate it against the euro, which is presumably, presumably the purpose because Greece's debts are denominated in euro. So um, when I'm home, I use the analogy that the euro is like Hotel California. You can check in, but you can't check out. Um, <laughs> it's, um, so that's been my position for a while. Rarely does an economist get a real-time test of his hy hypothesis like I have now. So if you have any doubts about why my hair is gray, there you go. It, you know, I continue to think that it's in everyone's interest, in the interest of Greece, in the interest of Germany, in the interest of the Netherlands, in the interest of Finland, to find an accommodation here. That the gold standard broke up in part because the country at its center, the United States, became an engine of deflation, and the Fed did fall down on the job. Events in Europe could evolve in a different direction starting tomorrow. So I think there still is a relatively high, a high probability, there I go, that the euro will survive, although I would agree with the implication of your question, Paul, that the risks are probably higher now, the risks to the survival of the single currency are higher now than they've been previously because banks in the strong countries have been disconnected from debts in the weak countries because political positions all over Europe are hardening, because centrist parties are losing political support given the extent and given the depth and duration of the crisis. I think Europe is at a very 
risky juncture, and I'm still hopeful that it will pull through. How's that? Way in the back. Thank you. I think um, Bretton Woods con uh, institutions like IMF is, in a sense, a product of lessons we learned from the Great Depression. But how do you think, uh, to what extent do you think these institutions like IMF uh, were successful to prevent or at least to the recent crisis? But if you, don't, if you think it was not successful, what were the problems and issues? Challenges. Thank you. On my way here, I was back in the U.S., and I came back to this hemisphere last weekend. I stopped in Dublin, where there was an IMF Central Bank of Ireland conference celebrating the recovery of the Irish economy and the fact that eight years on, Ireland was about to match the levels of GNP reached in 2007. Christine Lagarde was there, and I think that is, there, there was some reflection on, on these questions. The IMF does financial surveillance. It issues financial stability reports. It didn't warn of financial problems in Ireland or, for that matter, the United States in the lead-up uh, to the crisis. The IMF, as coordinator of policies, uh, I think its role has been assumed by the Group of 20. The Swiss National Bank didn't uh, notify the IMF that it was about to change its exchange rate, as suggested by the Articles of Agreement. And you may have seen Madame Lagarde on CNBC last week expressing her unhappiness about that fact. So part of the problem is that the IMF needs to, to change to keep up with a changing world. And while the fund is, calls itself a learning organization, as all of us who work in institutions like this know, learning requires a lot of effort and study. Um, let me leave it at that. There, there are questions upstairs as well, one here. I was wondering uh, what lessons from history might help us understand the risks coming from other economies, such as uh, risks from China and the shadow banking sector and the uh, real, estate, real estate bubble there? If you ask me what am I uh, worried about, what keeps me up at, at night at the moment, I worry about events like what happened late last week where there's a shock where uh, a central bank wrong foots the markets or something like that, and a big financial institution goes under, and not only a relatively small foreign exchange platform here in London and another one in uh, New Zealand. I worry about the U.S. Treasury market. It so happens that the petroleum exporting countries, if you include China, if you include Russia, excuse me, if you include Russia, are the third largest holders of U.S. Treasuries after China and Japan. And as they suffer balance of payments weakness, financial problems, need to intervene in the foreign exchange market, 
they could be forced to sell off a bunch of those assets all at once. And we learned late last week that financial markets are less liquid than they were before the crisis. I worry about those things much more than I worry about a hard landing in China because I think China is still enough of a controlled economy that they can control the rate of dissent of the Chinese economy. Um, China has $3 trillion of reserves. What are they good for? They're good for recapitalizing the banking or shadow banking system if the need arises. I'm not much worried about Russia. When the big Russian financial collapse comes, as it will, because Mr. Putin could only instruct instruct Gazprom and the other state-linked companies to use their dollar reserves to support the ruble once, now that those dollars have been used, capital controls would be the next step. The point is that everybody sees that train wreck coming, and when you do see it coming, you can prepare for the worst. Russia is one of those rare cases where we clearly can see it coming. And finally, um, all credit to last night's speaker notwithstanding, I don't worry much about secular stagnation in the United States either. I think the U.S. economy is, is growing now. Mr. Obama was right last night in his State of, uh, of the Union message to point to the need to address distributional issues, infrastructure issues, other long-term issues in the United States. He was wrong at the same time to say we should close the book on the financial crisis. Those problems are past us. I think those problems are still with us, and they could resurface quickly. There was one more back there as well. Um, you've said a good deal about uh, analogies across time uh, about certain crises. And I've seen a little bit of uh, rhetoric comparing the crisis in Greece uh, and, and using that as justification for austerity in other countries. I wonder if you might comment on, um, you know, if, if you will, uh, analogies across space um, on, on that issue or, or maybe any other issues that you have on your mind. Thank you. A lot of my uh, historical work is informed by analogies across space. So the original influential literature on the Great Depression took the form of work like Friedman and Schwartz's Monetary History of the United States, an analysis of the Depression in one country, one all but closed economy experience, or at least closed economy narrative. And I think you can learn a lot more by comparing different countries. The comparison I started with was countries that abandoned the gold standard relatively early, like, like the, the UK, and recovered from the Great Depression relatively early, versus countries like France that stuck with it for a long time, reflecting their own earlier historical experience. France had a near hyperinflation, a double-digit inflation several years in the 1920s, rendering it more reluctant to abandon the gold standard in, in the 1930s and it paid the price in terms of slower recovery. So I'm a 
big believer in what you're alluding to, which is cross-country comparisons and, and that kind of empirical work. Thank you. Um, one of the tools used uh, this time round has been QE. Um, to the extent that the Fed or the ECB chooses to keep uh, the bonds on its balance sheet, isn't this just um, you know, monetizing the deficit? I'm thinking, of course, about um, the payments of the coupons and the principles, principles uh, back to the Treasury. And you know, couldn't this be, you know, if you think that you know, some of the bonds on, on the balance sheet are worth around 25% of GDP, um, isn't this one of the? Um, isn't this just an easy way to generate inflation and to, you know, um, to, you know, to help move out of um, of, of the uh, you know, depressed situation that we're in with respect to yields? I think we've learned from the crisis that there is no mechanical relationship between the size of the central bank balance sheet on the one hand and risks of in inflation on the other. That connection is contingent on a variety of other conditions and circumstances. That said, central bankers tend, tend to instinctually believe that there is such a connection. And that instinctual belief was presumably part of what informed the decision by the um, Swiss National Bank to take a uh, uh, make a disastrous change in, in policy late last week. Is it necessary for central banks to move quickly to shrink their balance sheets back to normal levels in a situation where inflation continues to run significantly below their 2% target in the United States, in Europe, in Japan? Certainly not clear to me. Is it the role of the central bank to generate profits and profits on its balance sheet and seniorage and transfer them to the cantons in Switzerland or the central government in the UK and the US? No, it's the role of the central bank to target inflation and pursue policies consistent with economic, financial, and of course, price stability. Will the problem of bloated balance sheets take care of themselves? Absolutely. The average tenor of the bonds on the Fed's balance sheet, I think, is now under five years. So give it five years and all that stuff matures and rolls off the balance sheet by itself. Is QE a source of moral hazard that simply encourages profligacy on the part of governments? That seems to be what Mrs. Merkel said on Monday. It's not clear to me that that logic necessarily follows. The Fed has done three rounds of QE, and the U.S. deficit has come way down in the meantime. The Bank of England did QE, and your deficit is beginning to come down. So um, I'm worried about the risks of QE in, in the European case, for example, in the Japanese case, for example. I'm more worried about the, the risks of not doing QE. Pick one. Hi, thank you. You had said earlier that in the financial crisis that we just came through that the failure to 
save Lehman Brothers was the biggest mistake. But I'm just curious about the counterfactual. So in the scenario where some public-private consortium bails out Lehman, presumably that greatly diminishes the chances that you get TARP and other reforms or other policies that, that presumably then contributed to financial stability. So I'm just curious, in the situation where Lehman was bailed out, would financial stability actually have been better, do you think? Over what horizon would be the the response to the question? So I think the decision to allow the uncontrolled bankruptcy of Lehman did move us to the edge of another total financial collapse and, and Great Depression. The commercial paper market in the U.S. froze. The repo market froze. There was a run on money market mutual funds. Everything went haywire, and only through a combination of fast footwork and good luck did we avoid the worst. But it, as I say in the book, the ironic result of that was that we did less in terms of financial reform subsequently than we might have done. That's uh, a bargain that different people can evaluate in different ways, depending on the weight you attach to unemployment, which would have been much greater in 2008-2009, was greater in the scenario where Lehman failed than it would have been, I think, if Lehman had been saved, and how much weight do you put on the importance of financial reform. The financial reform process isn't over. The bad news is that the U.S. Congress wants to roll it back. The good news, in a way, is that we've had a drumbeat of financial scandals that keep the case alive. So we've had the LIBOR rigging scandal. We've had the Forex market scandal. We've had the money laundering scandal. We've had the evasion of sanctions scandal. Terrible scandals all. But the silver, silver lining is they remind us, they reminded Bill Dudley of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that the financial crisis wasn't caused simply by a few bad apples, but there is a behavior problem in financial markets uh, that needs to be addressed. More generally, I think your question points to the difficulties uh, of doing counterfactual history. So maybe in closing, since we're running over a little bit, let me give you a hypothesis in financial history. Imagine that the Fed and Treasury stepped in and saved Lehman Brothers in 2008. There would have been no sudden freeze of U.S. financial markets and panic. There would have been no crisis meeting at the White House where Barack Obama articulated a view of the financial crisis and how to end it, and John McCain showed himself unable to get his mind around the problem. If Lehman Brothers had saved, maybe we would, had been saved, maybe we would have gotten a McCain administration. What would the implications of that have been for economic and financial policy? Thank you. Thanks, Thank you.